every time I get to spend time studying to write a sermon, my prayer is that I would be honest with the text, and my prayer is that it would land on hearts that are ready to receive it and to put it into action. You notice the name of the sermon is called I Saw the Sign, and some of you sang an Asa Bay song in your head, right? Yep, fun song. Some of you have no idea who Asa Bass is, not going there. I have a question, though. Have you ever experienced anything in your life that was too random to be explained away as a coincidence? Many years ago, when Aaron and I weren't exactly a couple yet, but we were becoming one, we went on our second date. We didn't actually know it was even our second date. Our first date was by accident. That's its own story. And even though we didn't really know it at the time, we were going to start this relationship. We, I remember us going to a specific movie on our second date. It was called Signs. Anyone? <laughs> yep. Signs is the story of the Hess family in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, who wake up one morning to find a 500-foot crop circle in the middle of their cornfield. Graham Hess is played by Mel Gibson, his brother Merrill is played by Joaquin Phoenix, and Graham's two children, Morgan and Bo, watch TV news reports with growing alarm as they learn that the crop circle in their cornfield is similar to others all around the world. All the products of an alien invasion. On the TV screens, they see 14 lights in the sky over Mexico City, which is visual evidence of the invaders. Merrill turns to Graham, Graham, Mel Gibson's character, who used to be a pastor, who seemed to have lost his faith, and Joaquin Phoenix's character turns to Graham to essentially find some comfort. Some people think this is the end of the world, Merrill says. Is it true? Do you think it could be, as he says to his brother? And Graham flatly, flatly replies, yes. Alarmed by his brother's response, Merrill's quest Merrill questions him. He says, how can you say that? And Graham says, that wasn't the answer that you wanted. And Graham, but full of fear, Merrill demands, couldn't you at least pretend like you used to be? Couldn't you at least say some things that would bring comfort? And Graham then says, people break down into two different groups. When they experience something lucky or out of the ordinary, group number one sees it more as luck, more as in a coincidence. They see it, and yet there's group number two. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I said that wrong. People break down into two groups. When they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than a coincidence. They see it as a sign, as evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it just as pure dumb luck, a happy turn of chance, and you can be sure that the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in, the, in a very suspicious way. For them, their situation is 50-50. It could be bad, it could be good, but deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own, and that fills them with fear. There's a whole lot of people in group number one, when they see those 14 lights, they're looking at what they think is a miracle, and deep down, they feel that whatever is going to happen, that there will be someone there to help them. And that fills them with joy and hope. So what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you a person that sees signs and sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at it this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences at all? Turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 43. 
as we see Jesus performing what many would say is a miracle and what others, depending on which group you're in, may see as just chance or luck or just a coincidence. Verse 43, here's what it says. After the two days, he left for Galilee. He being Jesus, left for Galilee. And Jesus has spent these two days with the Samaritans. We studied John chapter four, the beginning part of this. I think we started in 1961. And we've been going through this book and we see Jesus having this conversation with the woman at the well. And then after the woman at the well receives who Jesus is, understands that Jesus is the Messiah, what does she do? She goes into Samaria and she starts to tell people what she's seen. And some believe, but some want to actually talk to Jesus, the source. And so they ask him to spend two days with him, which he does. And they ask these questions of him, and yet a lot of people, not just because of his example, but because of his words, become new followers of Jesus in a place that was very unlikely, very irreligious. And yet Jesus' words rang through to them, and God drew many people to himself. Verse 44. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is a very common saying, isn't it? It had become a proverb to the people in this context, and it was an honest statement that generally applied to people. Some commentators will allude as we look at this that the fact that was, fact was that Jesus was more effective in two days in Samaria than he had been his lifetime in Nazareth or Galilee. Jesus had been an outsider in Samaria and yet spoken to their reality and many people heard and believed they repented, but he had less fruit in his hometown. This is a true statement I think most of us would agree. Experts always come from out of town, don't they? I actually had the opportunity this week, it's a little ironic, to go be an expert somewhere else if you will. Went to Denver, and I used to be with the speaking ministry called Forge, where I would go, and I'd speak all over Northern America, and I would preach the gospel and train people and teach them how to share their faith, but this time I got to, not as an employee, but as an expert, if you will, get to come in and train a bunch of their college young adults that they had gathered from all over the country. And I got to speak into their life, and I got to teach them the word of God, and I got to talk for nine hours. Yay. (sighs) And it was, it was a great time, and what was so fun was at the end of the training, and they were taking notes, and I was making them do practicum with one another and share takeaways and all of that, we then got to do an evangelistic scavenger hunt. Evangelistic scavenger hunts are fun, and the ones I make up are ridiculous. Like one of the things on the sheet was, go find someone of another faith and arm wrestle them. <laughs> Extra points if you win. And we went down to downtown Denver, and these students went, and they built connections, and we gave them money to go feed themselves, but also feed other people. And there were relationships being had, and there were crazy stories happening, and they were sharing the gospel, and it was so exciting. And you know what? No one questioned me. You know why? Because I was from out of town. And one of the reasons we often see experts from out of town rather than those that are around us is because those that are around us have their sanctification process on display. You guys notice that? And God tends to not sanctify us through pillows. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? It's usually through more difficult circumstances that let's just be honest, okay? If we can't be honest in a church building, where are we gonna be honest? We fail, right? Like, just me? You just did if you're not admitting that you failed. And yet, the funny thing is that really our sanctification process often goes through trial and error, doesn't it? 
We do something wrong and we fail, but we fail forward because we learn from those things. But those that are out of town experts, they usually don't lead with all the things they've done wrong or the mistakes they've made, the mistakes that they made. They talk about the things that have gone right and the things that have actually worked. When my wife and I do premarital counseling with couples, you know we spend most of our time telling you? Everything we've done wrong because we don't want you to do the same things that we did. And it is only by the grace of God that my wife and I are married today and in love with one another. Because we fail, we're messed up, we're tore up people. But those that are, again, out of town experts, we don't see their mistakes. We don't see how they've learned. But here's the thing, other than Jesus, none of us are perfect. So we're learning through trial and error. So please don't hide from the fact that we make mistakes. When I was training these students in Denver, I asked this question. I said, what's similar about Lance Armstrong, Kobe Bryant, and Tiger Woods? And everyone was like thinking about it for a second. And I, one student was like, well, I mean, they were at the top of their field at one point. I was like, that's true, but what else? Everyone was kind of quiet. They didn't know what I was getting at. I was like, they all cheated. They all cheated. This is like common knowledge. Don't get mad at me because I'm, <laughs> they cheated. And you know what I know about Christians? That we fail. But if we'll own up to that failure before we get caught, there's a lot of grace for it, isn't it? And if any of those three guys had admitted what they had done wrong before they got caught, I don't think they would have fallen from grace the way they did with society. And here's the great thing about being a Christian. We get to admit we're messed up. As we pursue the perfect one, he is perfecting us but it's not about our perfection. It is about us pursuing the perfect one who perfects us to look more and more like Jesus. Verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, this is Jesus, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. If you guys remember in John chapter 2, Jesus goes and, and people are making a mockery of the Lord's house is what he says. And he goes and he starts flipping over tables and it's crazy. And his crowd control, we talked about the Jedi mind trick that it seemed to have happened. It was intense. And Jesus performed a miracle that he didn't get killed for doing what he did. But there is something, these Galileans in particular, there's something about seeing something firsthand. Having experiences that actually shape your thinking rather than just what you've heard or what you assume. But these Galileans, let's just be real, like all of us, are quick to forget. There's a reason we're called sheep. Bah, we don't remember things. And even if you have a better than normal memory, you forget and are numb to the things that God's already done for you. We're always expecting more from God. We're always expecting another sign, maybe another reminder, maybe another wonder or Ebenezer or marker to point us back to the fact that God is real, that he is close, and that he intervenes. Now let me first say, he does not have to do anything to prove himself. He already has. And as we will soon see in the text, at least for me and my humanness, I would be so frustrated if I were God because of how forgetful his people are. But let's look at this. You don't have to turn there. Just write a note, Matthew 12. But there's this conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, kind of the bad guys in the narrative that are making it all about religion and not relationship with God. And here's what it says, verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Entertain us, bro. 
And he answered in 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Woo-wee! But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, a couple things here. First, the story of Jonah, real. You know why I know that? Because Jesus quoted it. Second, he wasn't in a whale. He was in a fish. That's what it says. Just like to remind us of that. But here's the thing. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the most important sign anyone will ever experience. So you don't need anything else. You don't need God to entertain you. Jesus' life, death, and certain resurrection is the sign that each of us should place our trust in. But our God is so gracious to continue to give signs, to continue to intervene, to continue to remind us of his glory. And I don't want any of us to miss the magnitude of the gospel, in particular the resurrection that cemented the fact that those who fall asleep That's what the text says. Those who die, who have found their trust in Jesus, will be raised to life. Hallelujah. Because of Christ. And this redemption story, this gospel, this good news that we talk about, not every Sunday, but every day, this redemption story is what every book, every movie, every story that anyone writes is attempting to recreate. Do you know the gospel's in Infinity War? Look for it. I'll spoil it right now if you're not looking for it. I'm not going to. All right. And I don't want any of us to miss the fact that this resurrection is the sign that the world needs. Jesus trades his life for ours, and he is raised to life, and we will be raised to life. Why? Because he was. There's no other sign that can compete with this, but we are a forgetful people. We'll talk more about this next week, but let me be very clear. Signs that are from God point us to Jesus. Seems pretty simple. That might be your takeaway next week. But signs that are truly biblical and truly from God always point us to Jesus. It's when a sign or wonder becomes about making much of man that it's not from God. Because God does not exalt his creation, God exalts his son. In John chapter 4, verse 46, it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Jesus then returns to Cana, the small town where this big miracle had taken place. And I don't think everyone knew what happened when it happened, but people talk, right? I mean, not here, but like other churches, people talk, right? And these people had started to say, hey, Mary's son turned the water into wine. What? Like this was the conversation that was happening, and now his reputation was preceding him as he came back to Cana. And these people had witnessed a miracle, but instead of worship, they wanted more miracles. They wanted magic rather than the Messiah. That reminds me of the book of Acts in chapter 8. We've taught on this before. You've probably read it on your own. But there's this guy known as Simon the sorcerer who comes to the apostles and they're doing amazing things and the Holy Spirit's moving. He's changing lives and changing hearts. And Simon the sorcerer wants to buy this from them. Do you remember what the text says? Do you remember what Peter says to him? It's not very nice. Some of us would blush. To hell with your money and you. May it perish with you. 
And this magician had seen what the Holy Spirit could do, and he asked the apostles if he could purchase this power rather than actually know the person of God. Peter uses this strong language, but the hard part for this entire story is a lot of people in that passage have seen that in the text it says, and Simon believed and was baptized. And for most of us, we're like, well, then he's good. Doesn't matter if there's a heart change, doesn't matter if there's any fruit in his life. But the thing was, he wanted to control what God could do for him rather than trust in what God could do to him. You guys know the difference? And here's the crazy thing about control. I love control. Anyone? Anyone? Anyone not like to be on a plane because you're not allowed to fly it? Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. There's something to be said about the action that this man had of knowing the reputation of Jesus. He went to him because he believed that he could help. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And for the human condition, we will often reach out to God or to a higher power or to some type of remedy, hoping that it will make some type of difference. But how often do we ask God to heal or to change something or to stop something from happening? And maybe he does, and then we forget that he did it. Verse 48. Unless you people, (laughs) second time he's used this term, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. You people. This term sounds a little antagonistic, doesn't it? What up, right? Like, you people. And yet so many people put themselves in certain camps and want it to be an us and them, and Jesus obliges them by making clear that you people or those who want confirmation to be sure of something rather than to actually believe him at his word by faith. He's showing that there's two different types of people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. You people, plural. These people wanted miracles, but they didn't want the Messiah. This was a judgment upon the Jews that many were more enamored with miracles rather than the very words of God. I'm so glad this isn't the case in the church anymore. But Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, and let's just be honest, all of us want to be the early church in Acts. All of us become the church in Corinth, just saying. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Paul is saying that the church in Corinth were unreasonably attached to signs. They cared little about the grace of Christ or the promises of eternal life or the power of the Holy Spirit, but instead rejected the gospel with arrogance because they had no appreciation for anything but miracles. John Calvin, the theologian, talking about this very thing, says, I wish there were not many persons in the present day affected by the same disease. But nothing is more common than this saying. Let them first perform miracles, and then we will lend an ear to their doctrine. See, God's true. God's real. What he says is true. And if you believe it or not, that doesn't change the fact that he's right and you're not. And yet... So many of us won't even listen unless we're entertained first. Verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Come to where my child is. And the official assumed that in order for Jesus to heal, Jesus would have to be in proximity. But there is truly something to be said about 
this official reaching out to Jesus, even though God's presence is all around us, even though the Holy Spirit resides in those who have trusted Christ, his power knows no geographic limitations. But don't we generally want to just feel more of him or have him manifest himself in some type of crazy way that honestly, we don't want to have faith and just trust him at his word? Verse 50, go, Jesus replied, and your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. There is some power in what John just wrote about this man, that he took him at his word. Do we take God at his word, church? Do we actually listen to what he has to say? Do we actually do what he tells us to do? Do we understand the depth and breadth of the fact that the statement is that this man believed? You know why I know he believed? Because he went. He did what Jesus said. And this father of this son who was hurting and dying trusted what Jesus had to say, even if it was not what he expected, because he figured Jesus had to go with him and pray over him. And yet Jesus just said, go, and he will live. I know we struggle with trusting Jesus at his word. I know when money gets funny, things happen in our lives, we're dealing with uh, conflict, I know that it's hard to just trust that what Jesus has to say is enough. But here's my fear, church, that we miscalculate our faith as we read in James 1. We miscalculate our faith that we think that all that is required is to hear the words of God and that will sustain and sanctify us. But God is blatant when he comes to us with the command to obey what he actually says. I'm going to be a broken record right now. You guys know what records are? What I mean is this, I'm going to constantly point us to the simple truth that doing what God says is far more beneficial than just hearing what God says. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? Because as we say often, if all we do is hear what the word says, but we don't apply it to our lives, our heart gets harder. It constantly gets harder until we attempt to find something other than God to fill this huge hole in our hearts and lives. Far too many people dip their toe in Christianity. They're not willing to jump in. I'm not talking about jumping into the baptistry, but you ought to if you've trusted Christ. I'm talking about I'll do a little bit of Christian. I will be, and you're obviously not this person because you came in June, but I will be a Christer. You guys know what Christers are? It's what church people call the people that come on Christmas and Easter. And a lot of people just want to dip their toe in Christianity. They're not willing to jump in because dipping your toe doesn't require faith. Dipping your toe doesn't require anything but you just putting in the absolute minimum in order to say that you're religious. But again, I love control. But what you and I will come to realize the more that we follow Jesus, as we actually put into practice the intent that we had when we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we start to die to ourselves and imitate Jesus, we will learn day after day that the little control that we thought we had was fake, was placebo. And it's at this crossroads of faith, trusting God at his word, 
that his word becomes more real in our lives as we see that God all along has been giving us the opportunity to drop the yoke of slavery that we have in sin and pick up his yoke. See, in, in these times, you would take two different animals, a bull or a horse or something like that, and you would put this yoke that would go around the shoulders of the two animals. And usually, we would want the two animals to be roughly the same size because you didn't want one pulling harder than the other. And yet, when we take on the Lord's yoke, we get to walk alongside with him, but he's really carrying us. He's really pulling us. He says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who are weary. Church, are you weary? Come to me, all who are burdened. Are you burdened? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, the Lord says. I don't want any of you to be mistaken. Following Jesus is hard. It's brutal sometimes, and it is impossible without the Spirit of God taking residence inside of your heart, but there is no greater thrill than knowing that God's got you. There is no greater thrill than knowing that you are no longer at war with God as an enemy because of your depravity and his pureness. And Jesus says, come by faith. Trust that he is enough. Trust that not only does he have control, but he will lead you and do for you what you can't do for yourself. But that requires you to have a posture of submission, one that takes Jesus at his word, one that believes him when he says things that are not inclusive, like John 14, 6. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You know why this is offensive to people? Because they don't understand the resurrection. They don't understand that Jesus did what we could not do. They don't understand that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can find our justification, our salvation, not by anything we do, not by trying to work our way to God, because God already worked his way to us. John 4, verse 51, while he, the official, was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this desperation that this father felt? He goes to Jesus and he says, would you come with me? And Jesus says, go and he will live. And you've trusted him at his word and then guess what? It happens. There's never been anything that Jesus has ever said that has not either come to fruition or won't come to fruition. And based on God's past performance, we can trust in his future promises. And if he says something's going to happen, we can trust him. You know why? Because he rose from the dead. Verse 52. And the father inquired as to the time when his son got better. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, his fever left him. I act a lot like the father in the story. Any of you? I read the words of God, and I think, well, I should probably do them. So then I do. And then, here's the crazy part. I'm shocked that I actually grow. I'm shocked that when I pray things, God actually hears me. 
I'm shocked that sometimes when I pray, and I know sometimes the things I pray are selfish, but sometimes when I pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes, changes the prayer, but he actually answers my prayer. I'm surprised by this. Anyone? But like the official in this example, I always want to check the work. I want to see the evidence. I want to know the time that something happened I start to even doubt when I've asked him for something and he comes through and I start to think, well, maybe it was just a coincidence. I do that and I'm the pastor. You guys familiar with, uh, in, the, in the word of God, in the scriptures, John. Oh, I'm sorry, well, yeah, there's three of them. Um, not John. Um, Thomas. You guys know Thomas? Thomas has a nickname in scripture. Give it to me. Doubting. This brother needs a hug in heaven. Because if you're familiar with the text, what happens is Jesus rises from the dead and the other disciples come to Thomas and they're like, he's alive, he is walking. And Thomas is like, nah. Why? Because that's a ridiculous idea. Dead people stay dead. And yet Jesus comes back. And Thomas says, I will not believe unless I put my finger into the hole in his hand. See the, the hole in his side. And then Jesus comes like, John Leguizamo and, and uh, Mr. Deeds and just shows up. You guys don't remember that movie? That's fine. That was for me. He just shows up. And what's Thomas's response? Ah, maybe I need to take a class on this. No. He just falls down and worships. Poor Thomas. Because we're all Thomas. If I was around in biblical times and I was written about in scripture, here's what my nickname would probably be, Tim Ye of Little Faith. That's who I am. How, but how many of us doubt? How many of us lack faith? How many of us give credit to anything and everything but the Lord God Almighty who comforts when we're hurting? who listens when we're making excuses, who loves us when we're fighting against his lordship, who is patient when we doubt, who is wise when we are dumb. Anybody? Who cares for us when we only care about ourselves. This is the God that we worship, proclaim, and imitate with our lives fully submitted to him. Verse 53. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus has said to him, your son will live so he and his whole household believed. Wow. Because of this incident, because of this altercation, because of this sign, you know why I know it's from God? Because it pointed people to Jesus. And the official and his entire household believed. This is amazing. But what about us? How much have we seen? How much have we experienced? How much have we felt? How much have we read and recognized about God's saving nature not just from a family member being healed, or not just from what could easily be explained as a dumb coincidence. Have we not heard about the sacrifice in which God with skin did for us? Have we not been convinced that Jesus did not stay in that grave? Are we not betting our lives on the fact that Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day? What other signs do we need, church? And is that because God has not done enough? Or is it because we lack the faith to actually trust him at his word? I don't share my story very often here. I 
often when I go to speak somewhere else, I just, I share my story there. I, I shared it a couple years ago here when I guest preached before I was the pastor. But in my story, and many of you have possibly heard it, in my story, one of the things that God really used to change me and transform me was this. When my daughter was two and a half years of age, Reagan, my oldest, I went for a bike ride. She was at home with Aaron, and Lorelai was six months old. I go for a bike ride. I come back, and I ask my wife, I go, hey, where's, where's Reagan? And she goes, oh, she's taking a nap. I was like, oh, she... I left two and a half hours ago. She started the nap when I left. She goes, oh, yeah. And I said, can you go get her? So Reagan, or Aaron walks down the hall, and as she walks down the hall, she turns the corner in the doorway of where Reagan is sleeping, and as she turns the cor- corner, all I hear from my wife is, ah! And from the ah, I thought my daughter was dead. I ran down the hallway. I turned the corner. I looked into her room, and I saw a blanket over my daughter's head, and she was convulsing. I pulled the blanket off of her head, and her eyes were in the back of her head, and she was choking on her own vomit. She had a seizure for 28 minutes in front of us. She had 108 temperature. The ambulance comes. We put her in the back of the ambulance. They're trying to medication, do all these things, and nothing's really changing. Then eventually, she just stops seizing. I'm worried. I'm worried oxygen didn't go to her brain. I'm worried about a lot of different things. And so we go to the hospital, and we're at the hospital, and we're praying we're praying and people are coming and they're bringing us food and the flowers and all these other things. And I was actually supposed to start a Bible study the next morning at church. It's the only time I've missed a service. Not a service, but one I was going to speak at. And we're in the hospital and she's not doing anything. Like you put the, the light in her eye and there's no response. And I'm so worried my daughter's going to be brain dead. My mother-in-law brought me my Bible I started to read through it, and I went to the book of Job. It looks like Job. And I started to read through the book of Job, and Job is this conversation between God and Satan about God's servant Job, who has a pretty legit life. But Satan says he only praises you because of all the good in your, his life. And God says, no, he'd praise me anyway, which I always think it's funny when we try to argue with God. Doesn't he know everything? Anyway, so... God says, you can do whatever you want to him, you just can't kill him. And so Job starts to have some messed up stuff. He starts to just, it's, it's just, he's losing family members, he's losing all the livestock that he has, he's losing the real estate, all these things are happening to him. And yet in the text it says, naked in the world I came, naked I shall leave, I shall continue to praise my God. At 3.52 a.m. on October 12, 2009, while my daughter, who was two and a half, Reagan, laid in her hospital bed, I prayed this prayer, God, if you've got to take my firstborn, i got to be okay with that. Your will be done, Lord. The next morning, I, I finally fell asleep. We woke up around 7, and, and nothing had really changed, and then eventually they let us take her home. We let her sleep in our bed because she wasn't doing anything. We were actually really worried that she was going to have another seizure. She was at the end of the bed. She wasn't responding to anything. And then 36 hours after the seizure, we wake up. Reagan's at the end of the bed. She's jumping up and down like nothing ever happened. She hears Lorelai crying. She jumps off the bed, runs down the hall. She sees all these stuffed animals. She looks at me and she goes, Daddy, is it my birthday? I said, no, nah, baby. You don't remember the hospital? She goes, what hospital? It's like it never happened. But you know what God did in that time? He strengthened mine and Aaron's faith like nothing else. 
He allowed us to understand comfort that only comes from when we actually reach out to God. And here's the thing, a lot of us have comfortable lives. So why would we ever depend on him? And so God used that in my life. God used that in my marriage. God used that in my family. And, and it was around that time that I started to realize, man, the gospel's not about me. It's about him. It's about Christ. For some of us, it would be easy to just go, well, that was just a coincidence. But you know what? No. You know why I know it wasn't? Because God's fingerprints were all over it and it pointed to us to love Jesus more. So that was a sign. This passage that we read these few verses of Jesus and this official and his son who Jesus heals, heals. It's a powerful story, but the human mind would like to explain this away. We'd like to assume coincidences. Let's just be real. We're all conspiracy theorists to an extent. We'd rather say that it's a coincidence rather than God actually intervene, but I need to tell you this, that no matter how we try to doubt God, no matter how we lack faith, that doesn't change who he is. Every single one of us is either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going into a storm. And my God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And it's because of him reaching out to me in the storms that my faith is strengthened. I know that he's patient with me when I don't actually see the beauty of his majesty. And I know he's patient, and I know my God is not an absentee father. You know why? Because he actually wants to be involved in the things in my life now. Even the minute, ridiculous things. My dad is involved. He wants the very best for his children. But here's what he knows about his children. The very best thing for you and I is not to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The very best thing for his children is to have more of him. So I want to pray for us. Worship team, would you come on up? And I want to remind us that God is worthy of our praise. And so we're going we're gonna to sing praises to our God in worship. We're going to receive an offering. And if you didn't come prepared to give, if this is not the place where you feel that God is growing you spiritually, just don't even worry about the bag that's going to come by. Oh, that's there, but we don't need that. I'm going to pass the bags. And so what I would ask of you is, as these bags come by, only give if you feel like this is the place where God wants you to give. But also at the same time, understand that this is not a have to. This is a get to, and this is one of the ways that we worship him. This is one of the ways that we grow through dependence. And so we're going to pass the bags, take the bag, pass it on if, if you know, once you do whatever you do with it. But also, if you're new to the church, there are these cards in front of you at the pews. You can take the pen. I got thousands of the pens, too. But fill out that card if you're new and you want to get in contact with us. You want to know more about our church and just drop it in the bag as it goes by. We're growing, guys. Yeah, numerically. But we're growing spiritually. And God doesn't sanctify through pillows. He sanctifies by allowing us to rub off on one another. And guess what? We need each other. We need each other to confirm things that God has said through his word. We need each other for God to confirm what he's saying to us. We need other brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit to walk alongside us like Job's friends. And so as you're in this place, as the bag goes by, as we sing these praises to God, may you do this out of a want to rather than out of a have to. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that it comes alive. Thank you that it guides our steps. Most importantly, God, thank you that the word came in flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, I ask as we spend time worshiping and praising your name, praising the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that we would do this because you give us the faith. Lord, I pray that you would take this offering and you would make disciples of all nations using it, God. Give us the wisdom to steward your money well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.